So now we enter into the final section of the book of Luke, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, chapter 24, verses 1 through 53. In this section, Jesus does what no other has done, defeat sin, the devil, and death, and his resurrection. His appearance before many of his followers finally brings understanding to what Yahweh was accomplishing through his son. This understanding and the joy of Jesus' resurrection leads to their passion to be his witnesses to the world. So chapter 24, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the aromatic spices they had prepared. They found the stone had been rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men appeared beside them in dazzling attire, and the women were terribly frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has been raised. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then the women remembered his words. And when they returned from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So the women are going there the day after the Sabbath to finish the preparing of the body so that it can be laid out the rot, so that they can gather the bones up a while later. And they weren't able to do this thoroughly because they were rushing to get him in the grave for the Sabbath. And so they go there. And the stone is already rolled away. Now, this stone is like, traditionally like larger than taller than I am and wider than my arm span and about 10 to 12 inches well about a foot thick or maybe even thicker not all stones are probably equal in size um, it's not like they got a measurement going on a, a, a government mandated measurement but it roughly is speaking about that big and it would take several men to roll this over and the reason there these stones are so big and so heavy is because these are the bones of your ancestors and you don't want anybody robbing the grave. Now, they wouldn't be burying valuables in with the bodies like the Egyptians would. Well, only the Egyptian royalty and elite. But still, there's this sense of what you do to the bones determines their resurrection afterlife. So in the ancient world, they believed that if you like did not bury bones or you burned the bones, they couldn't be raised from the grave. They couldn't be brought into the afterlife. And, and though that's not accurate, uh, biblically, theologically, it's not accurate. It doesn't change the fact that they believe that. There could be people who hate you and they want to like grab your bones and ruin them or whatever, or some punk kid thinks it's funny. So th th this is a security vault to a certain point. And then not only that, there were the, the, um, the Romans have put soldiers there that were told in the other Gospels. Once again, this makes it very clear that the women would not have like gone to the wrong tomb by accident because it's clear that the, the, the soldiers are not there anymore. The tomb is rolled away. It's Joseph of Arimathea, so he probably has a signia on the tomb in some kind of way. So they go there, and they discover it's completely rolled away. And the two men are the angels. Now, remember, every time angels appear in the Bible, they're, they're often seen as men. They're always portrayed as men, and people often confuse them to be men. Uh, but there's something glorious coming about them in a lot of ways. They tell them that he's risen, but notice the teeny little rebuke here. <laughs> like, do you remember in Galilee before he started, he set his face towards Jerusalem that he told you that he was going to die on the cross? 
And they could have also said, and then you repeated it multiple times on the way to Jerusalem, but you guys still didn't like pay attention or, or really process like, oh, this is so confusing. No, it's not. I'm going to die. There's no like metaphor to that. He remember he told you that and that he was going to raise from the dead again? Well, it's happened. It's happened. He has been raised from the grave. And I already mentioned this before, but what makes this so phenomenal is not only do we only have two recorded resurrections in the entire Bible before Jesus comes along and begins his ministry, and then we see a plethora of resurrections during Jesus' ministry, but they're all by his hands. What makes this unique is not just how rare resurrections are, but that he is self-raising him from the grave. This is a self-resurrection. In every single case, it was either God working through Elijah and Elisha to raise the two boys from the grave in Kings, First Kings and Second Kings, or it was Jesus constantly raising other people from the grave. And now this is the first time in all of human history that somebody has raised themselves from the grave. And he's willing himself to life even though he's dead. But remember, he still exists because his spirit is there. And so he is risen. And the other thing that makes this very significant is there is no other religion except for Judaism and Christianity that even values the human body enough to want it back. In Islam, the, the body is not really valued. You just go off and go to paradise. And Hinduism, you just your body dies. And you, well, your body is an illusion. And then you just absorb into the, the God force as a spirit. And Buddhism, your body just dies and becomes nothing. And who ha- what happens to you in the afterlife? Nobody knows and nobody really cares, and even coming from Buddha. And so in the mystery religions, your body is just a meat popsicle stick that you'll just eventually leave and not care about. And there's really no religions that value the body enough to get it back, to want it back, let alone to get it back in some kind of redeemed, um, sinless kind of a way. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits in the grave. And this is important because just as Leviticus 23 tells us that you are to celebrate first fruits the day after, or sorry, the Sunday after Passover, and this is where you offer up your first fruits of barley, Christ is rising from the grave on first fruits. Okay, now some people said he could have raised from the grave like on that Saturday. That's what allows them to have a Wednesday death. The problem is he's not raising from the grave on first fruits on Sunday. And it, the, the cool thing about this is, this is, oh, this is what I forgot to mention. The cool thing about this is, remember, if Passover was on a Wednesday, remember Passover is, Passover is on a different day every single, every, a different day of the week every year. Okay, like Christmas, right? It's on Sunday, the next year it's on Monday, the next year it's on Tuesday, and I forget how many it goes, and then it like loops back and starts over again. So the year before Jesus died on the cross, Passover was on a Wednesday. That's not three days and three nights. The next year, Passover is going to be on a Friday. That's not three days and three nights. The next year, it's going to be on a Saturday, or it's going to be on a a, a Tuesday. But either way, there's only one day, I think every, is every fifth rotation, right? Well, I don't know what the Jewish calendar But there's only one day every X amount of years, three or four or five years, that Passover is going to fall on a day that's three days from first fruits. And what makes this so incredible is not only is he raising himself from the grave, but he is literally getting himself killed on Passover day to fulfill that 
multiple thousand year prophecy in Leviticus 23. And he has to get himself killed on a year that Passover is three days away from first fruits. So he can raise himself from the grave on first fruits to fulfill that festival as well. Because then 50 days after Passover is um, Feast of Weeks, which is a celebration where you give up your first fruits of your wheat harvest and you give that to God to remember the giving of the law. And so he tells them to wait in Jerusalem. He appears to them for 40 days. And then after he ascends into heaven, he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And 10 days after that, 50 days after Passover, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 on the exact day of Feast of Weeks. So not only is he raising someone for the grave, he's getting himself killed on the right day according to Leviticus 23 in the right year that Passover is three days away from um, first fruits in order to fulfill Jonah in the belly of the whale three days and three nights that happened hundreds of years before Jesus came along in order to get raised from the grave on the exact day of first fruits in order for the Holy Spirit to come on the exact day that the law was given on Mount Sinai because the Holy Spirit is the new law being written into our hearts and this is why Peter makes the connection in First Peter and says that Christ is the first fruits from the grave the offering up to the barley harvest on Sunday nights on the 17th and that we, our resurrection, is the second fruits from the grave, which is the wheat offering that's offered up on Feast of Weeks, so that when the Holy Spirit enters us on Feast of Weeks, we are now guaranteed our own resurrection that will come one day. Jesus is not just self-resurrecting himself. He's doing this on the exact right days to fulfill these four spring festivals laid out in Leviticus chapter 23. And then there's three fall festivals which have not been fulfilled yet. They're going to be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if he fulfilled the first four literally on this right day of the festivals, I tend to believe that he's going to fulfill those on the exact days of those festivals as well. This is what makes Jesus' resurrection so amazing and the many, many other things I probably have no idea how they work in the cosmic mystery of God. But in a just concrete kind of way that we can easily see here, this is a self-resurrection. When they turn from the tomb, notice the lack of hesitation. Now once again, remember it's always the minority or the oppressed or those without power that the Bible always emphasizes the ones who are getting it or have a greater faith. And so it's the women who go to the tomb and there is no doubt, there's no hesitation they immediately turn from the tomb and they begin to tell everyone. Where many of the men who typically have positions of power are going to have doubts. So now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like pure nonsense to them. And they did not believe them. Now in some sense... You can't blame them. I mean, if somebody comes running in this room right now, like, they've been raised from the grave, we'd be like, what? We believe in resurrection, but that's not something that happens all the time. But in another sense, they should not doubt this because Jesus told them this multiple times, and they've seen Jesus do multiple resurrections. And for you and I, resurrections don't ever happen. But in the three and a half to four and a half years of Jesus' ministry, the disciples saw quite a few resurrections. I mean, they saw more resurrections than all of human history put together. But close. They're doubting here. 
But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, and he went bent down and saw only the strips of linen cloth. Then he went home wondering what had happened. Now, you love John's gospel, because John says Peter and the other disciple took off for the tomb, but the other disciple got there first. And everybody agrees that John is the other disciple because of how he uses that phrase in other places. Like, eh, remember the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet, and there's still a little competition going on. Peter is one of the very few men, and John later, and we're told in John's gospel, that are actually investigating this based on the word of the women. Verse 13. Now that very day, two of them were on their way to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and debating these things, Jesus himself approached and began to accompany them. Now there's two guys on the road to Emmaus, and they don't know about the resurrection. Okay, they, They've heard the stories and people talking about it, but they're just kind of like, whatever. That's, that's. They're walking, and they're depressed, and they're sad. As we keep reading, we get this sense that there's a great somber depression about them. And Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him. Well, one, we don't know how his body has been transformed. Two, he could be intentionally like not allowing them to have the eyes to see it. And three, he's, they think he's dead. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Then he said to them, What are these matters you are discussing so intently as you walk, walk along? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Like, what the heck is wrong with you? Where have you been? Have you been under a rock? Like, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is like the biggest event in Jewish history in a very long time, even on a political, national level. And he said to them, What things? The things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, they replied, a man who with his powerful deeds and words proved to be a prophet before God and all people, and how our chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Not only this, but it is now the third day since these things happened. So they're even pointing out the fact that it's three days later. Now are they just saying this because it's three days later? Or do they sing it because they remember Jesus saying that? I think it's because they remember saying it because why emphasize how many days it's been if it's... Nobody says like, well, after all, it is three days since my grandmother died. Like, people don't say things like that unless there's a real significant meaning to why it's three days later. Furthermore, some women of our group amazed us and they were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back and said that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So they're amazed by these stories. So right now, they're probably, and you can't blame them, they're probably a whirlwind of confusion right now. On one sense, there's an incredible sense of depression and sadness that not only their leader that they've been following and gave so much of their life to in the last four years is dead, but not only that, all the hopes of the Messiah coming to redeem them from the Romans has just now died. So they're mourning that theology and that hope as well. But at the same time, the women are saying things, and that seems really amazing and exciting, and it seems to match up with some things that Jesus said, because obviously the women are probably repeating that because the angels have made it pointed out that connection to them. But at the same time, resurrections don't happen. And you know what? The resurrections, we did see Jesus doing it, but if Jesus is dead, 
we don't accept the fact that he's God because that's blasphemy. So how in the world did he get raised from the dead? I mean, I guess God could do it, but he always works for prophets, and the new prophet has... I mean, all these thoughts are probably just whirling around their head. And so in some sense, they're sad and depressed. In other sense, this isn't logical, and God doesn't work through people unless they're a prophet, and there's no other prophet except for Jesus, and he's dead. But three, these stories are pretty amazing, and he's not there, and we do remember things like that, and maybe this long road, they're just discussing and trying to process. What do we do with all this information? How do we handle this? When they did not find his body, they came back and they said they had seen a vision from angels to lie. Then some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. So he said to them, you foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. That would catch you off guard. All these whirling thoughts and all these whirling emotions, and you're trying to figure out and process it. Some strange guy who doesn't even live in Jerusalem, hasn't been around for a long time, have no idea who he is, just says, you fool. You're like, what? Who are you to call us a fool? Like, who are you? That would be so confusing. So he said to them, you foolish people, how slow to heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them the things that written about himself in all the scriptures. I mentioned this before. That's the sermon I would give anything to hear. I would give anything to hear Jesus go from Genesis through the First Testament and make all these connections. And this, I have kind of claimed this as the foundational verse for my ministry. Like, this is, the, this is what I have decided to make the goal of all my teaching. And that's what I've tried to do throughout this entire series going through the First Testament stuff is to make that connection. I would really love it if Jesus had given this sermon and I could just, like, copy him and repeat it. Um, but And I know I have not done anywhere close to justice of what Jesus has done. But this is what I've dedicated my entire life to, is basically trying to recreate this to the best of my ability, that sermon and those connections. And I believe, and this is why it's probably one of my favorite Second Testament books, that Hebrews probably gets the closest to making that connection. There, there's smatterings here in Paul's writings and Peter and James, but as far as like really going Christ superior to the priests, Christ superior to the prophets, the law, Moses, sacrifices, Hebrews probably gets closer to that than probably any other book in the Second Testament does. But how phenomenal for him to say, boom, 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 and just take all these dots and stitch them together into a complete picture. And just like, I know you guys think that you're drinking from the fire hydrant sometimes, but at least you have Christianity as a foundation of the Second Testament. Imagine them with no Second Testament, no Holy Spirit, and it's coming at them. And what, how their mind has to be spinning in a whirlwind of like dots that are just slamming together and forming this picture of Christ for them. And all these things that they've had to memorize and understand from the First Testament. He makes these connections for them. This is very important too. Because this means that Christ, who is God, who is the Word, clearly sees himself in the First Testament. Now, I don't believe that the First Testament is being written with a specific, like, Jesus, 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 in every single verse and even every single chapter. But the idea 
of God's character and how he relates to humans, and then very specific things that we've talked about throughout the years are definitely pointing to Jesus because Jesus is the embodiment, is the flesh of God, and is fulfilling many of the ideas and concepts that God revealed through material things like sacrifices and tabernacles and priests and prophets and kings. It's 28. So they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he wanted to go further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it is getting toward evening, and the day is almost done. He went to stay with them. So he wanted to see if they were going to offer him the gift of hospitality. Now remember, hospitality is everything, and this is often the mark of righteousness. Remember when God says, like, if there's only a few righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll spare it. And there are no righteous. And Lot doesn't really look that righteous. But when the angels go to the city, that becomes the test for Lot. Will he invite them in and will he protect them? Because this is what they did with Abraham. God and the two angels in chapter 18 walk by Abraham as if they're going to just walk by and not stop. And Abraham says, come, 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 come and I'll feed you which is a testament to his righteousness, his love of his neighbor, the love of the stranger. And then when they go to Son Gomorrah, they're testing Lot to see, is he truly righteous? And the same way that Abraham is, since he's already morally compromised him so much by living in Son Gomorrah and being in the gate, politically compromised as a judge, a part of the government. And Lot shows that there's still some righteousness in him, a very little bit, but enough that God says this is worthy of saving you. What Jesus is doing is moving on. Now, these people are nowhere close to Lot and their lack of righteousness, but he's moving on to see what will they do. He is the stranger on the road, and maybe they don't even know whether he's a Jew or Gentile. We don't know for sure how they're thinking of him. And the question is, will they live out the Good Samaritan? Will they live out the Good Samaritan parable? And they do. They invite him in. So it was getting toward evening, and the day was almost done, and so he went to stay with them. And when he had taken his place at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And at this point, their eyes were opened up, and they recognized him. When Christ did this sign of the new covenant of our redemption through his blood and broken body on the cross, the Spirit of God allowed them to see him for who he really was. And there probably was a combination of the way that he broke the bread because he probably did it in a very unique way compared to most rabbis, since rabbis are just eating bread for Passover meal. But Jesus is using the bread as a very specific sign of a very specific, unique, and ultimate covenant that he's going to be making. At that moment, they're like, you're, you're him. You're him. And then he vanished. Like, whoa, wait a minute. I just realized it's you, and we want to see you and be with you. Like, we thought you were dead, and now you're gone? This would be so confusing to you. They said to each other, Didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So they got that there was, this wasn't just some guy rattling off a bunch of information. They got that what he was saying was like true. So they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were gathered together, and saying, Yahweh has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how they recognized him and when he broke the bread. 
While they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So they're like talking excitedly and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, yeah, right. And then like he's there. They're like, whoa, where did you come from? Like he just pops into the crowd and he's standing there. At this point, he says, peace be to them. But they're terrified. They're terrified because he's alive. Maybe he's a ghost. And ghosts aren't good things in the ancient way of thinking. And they're terrified, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you frightened? And why do you doubt? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands. My feet is me. Now remember that Greek word for hands is the same word for fingers and wrists. It's all in the same idea there. And my feet, it's me. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see I have. Now, once again, this is a very important anti-misreligions, anti-Hinduism, anti a lot of these religions we went through in compared religions of that Christ was only a spirit or only a God and had no physical body. Or that the body doesn't matter and is not worthy of resurrection. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe because of their joy, and they were amazed, he said to them. So now this is less of a doubting, I don't believe, and more of a dumbfounded, I don't know what to say, holy crap, this is amazing, kind of a disbelief. Do you have anything to hear to eat? So they gave it to him and a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it in front of them, proving that he's not Casper the friendly ghost where everything just drops through your body. So he eats it. And this is evidence. 